Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Chris Meehan, who is a vice president for the Bank Corp. They are a small business bank, and they specialize in financing, working within dental, veterinary medicine, and other medical professions. Chris has worked in the healthcare financing space for almost 10 years, brings a lot of personal experience and perspective. I haven't had anyone on yet that's talked about this, so I certainly wanted to, to bring it up because anyone that's listened to the podcast knows that I'm a, an advocate of private practice ownership. When it comes to understanding like what are the options, what's out there, how do banks look at veterinarians as potential people to borrow and just getting those questions answered. So Chris, thank you so much for carving out the time to join me today. Isaiah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I think the natural place to start is basically when looking at veterinarians, how do lenders kind of view veterinarians as far as being able to be good candidates for that? I know student debt a lot of times is the big worry, like, oh my gosh, I have all this debt. I need to get this paid down before I can go out and look at or maybe aspire to be a practice owner. Can you kind of set the stage for what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So clearly veterinarians are professionals that bank like the bank core are very happy and eager to work with mainly because they are typically pillars of the community. They are typically very compassionate and passionate people who are extremely professional in what they do day in and day out. So from a credit standpoint and from a lender standpoint, that makes them very attractive. So you alluded to the daunting student debt that every veterinarian, it seems, comes out of school with. I think the fear that veterinarians have of, hey, am I going to be credit worthy? Will I be able to do this? Will a lender look at me positively, even though I have all this student debt? I think it's important to remember that a lender like the bank or other lenders out there are most interested in the idea that, hey, they got that education. They worked really hard in order to become a veterinarian and a healthcare professional. And therefore, we understand that there's going to be some debt associated with that. So although there is a mountain of student debt, typically, debt itself is not frowned upon. Rather, it's looked at as a necessary evil and one that as long as at the end of the day, when we're cash flowing, making sure that after all the payments are made to the student loans, to the loan from the bank, you know, their mortgages or their rent, et cetera, as long as they can live pretty well and in that cash flows then it's definitely something that the banks are willing to work with, not against. Absolutely. And the idea that student loans are just an investment in your skill set and what's the value of that skill set over a course of a career is an astonishing figure. So yeah, it's not necessarily a negative. It's different than having mountains of credit card debt. It's looked at a little differently. Not all debt is created equal. One of the things that we chatted on when we connected early on, and typically when someone is looking at either and we'll talk about acquisition or startup here in a little bit, but can you talk about the team or how do people work together from a professional partner standpoint with a bank or with a veterinarian as they're starting to think like, yes, maybe I do want to acquire this practice or I want to talk to the current owner and see what the options are. Who do they start talking to? And can you talk a little bit about how that team works together? I think that is important. So it's going to be different for every veterinarian, right? So some people might think that they're at the point in their career where they're ready to manage people. They're ready to open their own practice. And maybe a startup is the right choice for them. They start their own practice right out of the gate. Or conversely, maybe they feel as if the, a little bit more experience would help them. So associating at a, an established practice for a little bit of time 
several years might be best. Maybe oftentimes with the intentions of either buying into that practice and or maybe buying the owner out of that practice. You see that scenario a lot as well. So the veterinarians really need to ask themselves, I think, do they have the capability to run their own business? And if so, what's more attractive to them? Is it that startup or is it that acquisition of an existing practice? So can we talk a little bit about the major differences from a banking perspective when you look at startups and acquisitions? As the price of clinics and hospitals are starting to really go up and it's getting harder and harder, especially in a metro area, let's say, where you see outside competing interests from corporate consolidation, private equity, like those prices are moving higher. And I think it might be helpful to understand from an acquisition standpoint, there might be a price that, hey, we just cannot afford that. And the amount of money that they can go borrow and get from a corporate level is just going to be different than as an individual borrowing and what they just have saved. So I think chatting through startups and acquisitions would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some major differences. And I would say, and there's pros and cons to be had with both. And again, it depends on the individual. That individual needs to kind of figure out what it is that's most attractive to them. So if you're speaking of, say, buying an existing practice or acquiring a practice, some of the pros might be it's going to have immediate cash flow. It's got a set established group of patients that are coming in. They know that the practice itself, the office, and they know the staff, et cetera. So there's nice continuity of management potentially associated with that. And that staff is already in place. Some of the cons might be that oftentimes it might be an older veterinarian who is selling the practice. So it might have some older equipment. It might need a facelift, if you will, which, of course, is going to cost them more money additional to what the practice itself costs. Maybe a difference of philosophies. It might be harder to sell patients on your philosophy versus what the other veterinarian's philosophy was, if you will. And the ugly part of it could be, hey, if there are issues in that practice that you're unaware of or that clinic that you're unaware of, you inherit those. So you really need to do a lot of due diligence when you're acquiring a practice. You need to understand how it was run. You need to interview the staff. There's a lot of things that are going to go into your decision to acquire a practice, whereby if you start your own practice, it's kind of play, right? You can do what you want with it and mold it how you want to shape it. So some of those pros might be you can get your brand new equipment. That's part of your cost. We'll be getting your brand new equipment. You get to design that office. It looks exactly and feels exactly how you as the veterinarian want it to feel as opposed to someone else's vision. And initially, it can definitely be less expensive. If there's a practice that's existing and they're doing, say, well over a million dollars, that practice can be costly, whereby if you start your own and you go slow and you grow at a reasonable pace, that can be something that the initial cost could be less. Now, the cons to that would be, of course, you have no patients, right? There are no pet owners bringing their animals in at this point. So you got to start that from ground zero. Significant startup costs, potentially, everything from all the pieces of equipment to uh, the marketing. You know, really, you're going to have to have a strong marketing plan and strategy to get out there and really attract those patients. You have to recruit and hire and train that staff, the front office folks, your techs everybody that's going to go into making your practice a success. So you're going to have to do that as well. And then of course, it's going to take some time and you're going to have to have some patience. So you might not be, you know, we spoke about those student loans earlier. It might take you a while if you start your own practice before you can make a significant impact on your student loans, whereby if you acquire, if that could happen faster. But again, there are pros and cons to either side of that. And I think it really is going to come down to that individual and what really makes the most sense to that individual. Yeah, there's a lot to kind of 
unpack there and ask some, I think, good follow-up questions. One thing with the startup too, you can think about doing relief work or you might be kind of have that side hustle for a little while to ramp up to where you can stay open more days and you're not open full-time in that startup. And it might be a couple days before you can go to three or four. So think about that. Let's focus on the startup, then I'll come back to the acquisition piece. Business plan. So if I'm a startup, I'm going to present to you as a bank that I'm looking at to understand what amount of money I may be able to qualify for. How important, what are the key things to think about from the business plan perspective? And then this may be a hard question to answer and it might be, it depends, but is there a general amount of like what the cost or what someone could qualify for with a startup? Like what that may look like? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I might be asking a nearly impossible question as well. As far as that associating goes outside of, if you're doing a startup and associating outside of the practice, what you just said there is actually music to my ears because that's exactly what a really good lender who knows what they're doing in the veterinary industry would look for in a startup. They would want that veterinarian to have continuing outside income in the form of a veterinarian. That outside income would come in the form of associating at another practice. Even if it's a band field or one of the major, if you will, corporate entities, just to continue to hone your skills, also have an outside income while you're building that practice. Just because it's not field of dreams, if you will, to hearken to an old movie reference, if you build it, they won't just come. It's going to take some time to build that practice up. So maybe being open two or three days a week as opposed to five, six days a week to start would make a lot more sense. Plus you have that outside income. So really good point, as I wanted to make sure that we addressed that and spoke to that. But you also spoke to what does it take to do a startup as far as a business plan and things like that. I would say there's not much difference in the two other than how it looks. So what I mean by that is both are going to require a very strong business plan. The lender is going to want to see a very strong business plan discussing just how you plan to either start and grow that practice or acquire and take over and have a transition, a smooth transition into the practice that you're acquiring conversely. So some of those things, an executive summary, for example, so that's going to have a practice description, a mission statement, some what your financing requirements are going to be for either of those two things. A practice description, so you know the history, the management team, things like that are going to be crucial to getting an approval from a lender. Also, a market analysis. Where is this place? Does it make sense? What's the demographics? What demographics do you plan to attract? If it's a startup, how do you plan to attract those demographics? Or if it's an acquisition, who are they and how do you plan to continue to have them coming to your practice? So all of those sorts of things are going to go into play. And then right down to your daily operation, how long do you plan to be open? Like we spoke to before, is it two to three days a week to start? And then what does that look like, et cetera. So that's all going to go into your marketing plan. Now, on top of that, you're going to need what we call projections and projections and assumptions. And those projections are basically, you know, in the form of a startup, that's all you have, right? To cash flow the opportunity to see how much you might qualify for or what makes sense. And what those projections are going to do is on a monthly basis, you would break it out for at least a two-year period showing month by month what you expect the practice to generate revenue-wise. And in doing so, it gives the underwriting team at a, at a bank a good picture of what that might look like, what your timeline is going to be before that business ramps up. And then same thing goes with that. If you're acquiring a practice, you're also going to need projections there. Hey, I'm going to take it over. 
Might there be some attrition? Might some patients leave because, hey, they love Dr. Smith, the, the old doc that's leaving, and maybe I might lose a few patients. And then conversely, how many do I plan to grow? And what are my case acceptance rates going to look like? Are they going to go ahead and accept all of the treatments that I want their pets to have, et cetera? So all of those things are going to weigh in. And the better you do on developing both your business plan as well as those projections and assumptions, the better off you'll be as far as being able to get some financing. Got it. And the one thing you talked about was a demographic study. And I will give a shout out that a lot of times people that do focus specifically on healthcare can help get those, whether you're working with someone from a healthcare, like real estate standpoint, there's a lot of companies out there that will do that. Had a recent client that is going to be acquiring and we ran some of that. And it's just good information. It wasn't anything earth shattering to her. I mean, she knows the area much better than I do. I don't live there. It's out of state. So I have no idea what the demographics look like, but it matched with what she felt the opportunity was. And that's great. It's just like reaffirming that, yes, this does make sense. So I think that's a really important part, just knowing that people listen to this all over the country, but you can say, oh, I want to be in this area. Well, shoot, that area has a ton of competition. It's really expensive from real estate. You're going to be really aggressive and have to pay above market rate, maybe for staff and for your team versus going somewhere where there's a bigger opportunity and maybe you're doing something different with your skill set. So I think that's a great point, Chris, from that standpoint. What about like a max amount to lend for an acquisition? So kind of going back to that corporate consolidator, the big challenge that I hear a lot is I can't pay the same price that the corporate entities are going to pay. And that's likely true. I don't think either of us are going to argue that. But when you look at the valuation of that business, are you going out and having someone that's a like certified valuation analyst? Are you looking at what's the EBITDA of this business? Is it the revenue? Is it the cash flow? Like, Can you give a little bit of an explainer of helping someone understand kind of what that max lending amount would be? Not that you need to take the max, everyone, but like, could they actually acquire this or is it just out of reach? If someone say, hey, I'll sell this to you for $2 million and they may only be able to borrow 1.2, like unless you have a big chunk of savings, you're just not going to be able to do it. Sure. Well, very good question. And I think the safest way for me to answer it would be that it's going to vary from lender to lender and type of lender to type of lender. And this actually is a good segue into what the different types of lenders are out there who are willing to and want to work with veterinarians. There's some out there that are what you'd call specialty financing companies where they have specific to healthcare professionals. And then there's, of course, the SBA loans. And then there's conventional, a conventional bank loan, et cetera. So there's three major different opportunities for lending out there. I'll kind of speak to some of the differences among between the three of them. And then I'll touch on your amount question at the end there. So, you know, in the specialty financing, they're going to have some fixed rates. A lot of times they can get up to 100% financing on an acquisition. They attend a 15-year amateurization and then graduated or you know, payment program potentially here and there. So those are pretty good. A lot of times, though, they are not that great with the startups and or what should I say? They're not so keen on startups, more the acquisitions. And then as far as the other opportunities, the SBA loan, they're going to have fixed and variable rates. If there's real estate involved in an SBA opportunity, that's going to be able to take the loan out 25 years as opposed to just the 10 or 15 that a specialty lender would be able to offer. So that from a cash flow perspective could make a big difference. And then it's going to be fully amateurized over the course of the loan typically. And then as far as the conventional banks, a lot of times that's going to be only a five to seven year term, which is really aggressive. So the higher the dollar amount on the front end, 
the higher those payments are going to be. So from a cash flow perspective, it doesn't make sense. So to your point about the, or your question about the amounts, the simple answer there is a business is going to be worth what it's basically generating, what it's worth. So what it's valued at. Typically, there's going to be an outside third-party appraiser that's going to come in and appraise the practice. There are specialized appraisers in the veterinary industry, et cetera, but they're all going to kind of come up with the same number. And it comes down to that cash flow. If you as an individual, you have a lot of outside debt, outside of the practice debt, et cetera, you might not qualify for a larger amount just because of your debt service ratio. You have too much debt out there to take care of and potentially you're not going to be able to survive. So really it's going to be what the practice is worth and then what your debt looks like and cash flowing all of that and making sure at the end of the day, you're able to take care of that. Now, any good lender worth their salt is going to make sure of that for a number of reasons. First and foremost is a good lender is going to look out for their customer. They're going to look out for who they're working with to make sure that everyone to put someone in harm's way. You don't want them to fail, right? You want them to succeed. And you certainly don't want to make it such that they can't put food on their table at the end of the day. So that's really important that you really take a good look at that cash flow and make sure it's going to make sense for that veterinarian to do what they're doing. Secondly, of course, is one thing that every lender is going to ask themselves, will they be able to pay us back? We're lending a lot of money here. Can they pay us back? So from a more of an institutional standpoint, you want to make sure that obviously they're going to be good customers and be able to continue to pay. But the biggest thing really is to make sure that you really need to cash flow everything and make sure that they have what they need to live from go. That way you guarantee that they're going to be successful and okay. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Thinking a little bit about biggest factors to, again, make yourself be a favorable borrower. Things to think about talking with lenders, like how much should you put down? I think you just talked about it. Some will do 100%, some won't. What's a good kind of suggestion? What about credit scores? Are there other items, things that are going to make them more or less attractive of just kind of maybe that more personal finance, which again is more interesting to maybe me personally, as far as like what we do, but just from a lender's perspective, are there some things that people could start to do to prepare if they're thinking about this in the future to make sure that when they do ask that it's not a, Ooh, well, I wish you would have addressed some of these things over the last 12 to 18 months versus they come in and they're ready to rock and roll. So a number of things that, especially the young veterinarians just coming out of school, a number of things that they can do even while they're in school proactively to help prepare themselves for this, basically realizing their dreams. And to your point, being a really good steward of your own credit, your personal credit is going to be huge. You can't necessarily instantly fix bad credit. It's going to take some time. So the best way to do it would be to get ahead of it and make sure that you keep your credit good. And some of the ways in which to do that, you can establish your credit by applying for two or three revolving credit cards or a line. And then obviously make sure that you know how to use them wisely. You pay for things with them and then you pay them off. The goal would be to pay them off every month. Never never have that minimum payment type of scenario. Don't take too many credit cards out. Then you've got all this revolving debt, which you can get yourself into trouble with. And avoid applying. So if you go out and say you need a car and you're in the process of applying for credit for a car, try not to go to 26 dealerships and have all of them run your credit because the more times that your credit is run, the more impact that can have on your credit score. So But yeah, definitely make your on-time monthly payments. Get two to three lines of credits, credit cards or otherwise. And then if you ever have a dispute with a creditor, 
make sure that you continue making those minimum payments while you're going through that until it is completely resolved. That way you never fall behind and there's no dings and no negatives on your credit, derogatories on your credit. Also, keep copies of all of your agreements, documents, clearings, you know, all of those sorts of things. So if you pay off a car, for example, make sure you keep that just in case someone out there didn't click a box or do what they were supposed to do. And suddenly you've had this thing sitting out on your credit for all these months and you had no idea about it. So definitely keep all of that. And then protect your identity, obviously. Do everything you can. We're in a world right now, especially with all the technology that so many folks are trying to steal credit out there. So really protect your identity. Do your best to do that. So one way in which to do that would be to review your credit report at least twice a year. There are some number of sites out there that will allow you to do it. Some of your own credit card companies now will do that for you. So definitely check into it. Don't just think, hey, I haven't heard anything. Must be ship shape. Before you know it, it could be too late. So And then those major credit bureaus are the Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. So just make sure you're aware of what all three of those are reporting on you. So all of those things are going to weigh in. So as far as the credit scores go, anything over a 700 to an 800, well, above an 800, obviously, is really great. Only about 21% of people in the country have that. So if you're there, great. (laughs) Do everything you can to keep it. If you're not, don't fret. That's not so bad. 700 to 799 is about 36% of the country. So that is a good place to be. You're very lendable at that point. And then below 600, 599 or below is where you don't want to be for sure. And in fact, anywhere over about say 660, 670 and above is kind of the minimum that you want to be. So doing all of these sorts of things and keeping an eye on that and trying to get the best credit you can is going to really help. And one other thing, one other point of this, it's not even about just do I qualify or don't I at that point, the higher your credit oftentimes, the better your rate's going to be potentially. So you want to make sure that you keep it as high as you can. So not only are you able to qualify for things, but you're going to be saving yourself money in the long run because you'll qualify for better rates, better terms and things like that. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the kind of pulling your credit report because that's just a good thing to do. I always say, hey, do it at least annually. I think you can rotate which one. You get a free report from each of them. A lot of credit cards will tell you too, but just make sure there's not anything weird on that because sometimes you'll see things that, oh, this was delinquent. Like, no, that wasn't. What you just said is exactly right. You paid this off, you're done with it, but somebody somewhere didn't do what they need to do on their side and it can cause an issue down the road potentially. But I just think that's a really good idea. Yeah, credit scores are tough. One of the big drivers of that too is just length of credit. So if you're younger, again, trying to get credit cards open without, if you don't have full-time employment, sometimes it's going to be smaller. It's totally fine. Just get it, use it a little bit. Obviously don't abuse it, just like you said, Chris, but it's a great point. What are, and I think low credit scores are one of them, but what are big obstacles or deal killers from someone that's coming to look at financing or lending that you see that are just like, hey, if this is the case, it's just going to be as much as we may love your business plan and your vision and we're excited for you. What is going to stop that? That you're just like, this won't work. Anything that comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, so from a personal standpoint, one of the things there would be really try to avoid bankruptcies, try to avoid charge-offs where you make an agreement with the credit card company to pay them lesser money or maybe none at all at times. You hear those advertisements all the time. Hey, if you have such and such of debt or more, call us. We can help. Yeah. They can help, but unfortunately that sticks on your credit report and therefore it makes you less appealing to a lender. 
So definitely you, you want to try your best to stay away from, you know, any kind of bankruptcy, personal, of course, business-wise as well. You definitely want to stay away from, if you can, those charge-offs and, and things like that. Other obstacles from the business perspective might be that it just, you know, flat out doesn't cash flow, maybe declining revenues. One of the biggest mistakes that some of the older veterinarians will make is that when they're getting into their twilight years and are looking toward retirement, they decide, hey, you know, I've made enough money. I'm doing really well. I'm just going to cut my hours back. Well, that's all well and good. But by cutting their hours back, they're also showing declining revenues. And maybe this goes on for two or three or four or five years. And of course, to a lender, if they see those declining revenues, they don't necessarily know that Dr. Smith decided that she was going to cut her hours back so she could spend time with her grandkids or whatever she's doing, maybe golfing, whatever it is that her passion is at the time. You know, that's all well and good. But the common mistake that they make is by cutting back those hours and reducing those revenues. The better option there would be to hire an associate to fill that gap. And that associate potentially could be the one that they're grooming to, to purchase their practice in the long run, maybe a couple of associates if, if need be. So, you know, just definitely from a deal killer on the business side could be those declining revenues or it just doesn't cash flow, those sorts of things. What's something I haven't asked about yet that's really important for people to understand that maybe they haven't, we haven't touched on yet? Is there anything that um, jumps out? Yeah. So being a lender myself and having been my, if you will, expertise in the industry is lending to veterinarians, et cetera. What I would say is when they are selecting their lender, any veterinarian who's looking to acquire a practice, purchase a practice, maybe expand their own practice. Maybe they've been leasing a space and that lease is coming up and it's time to design and maybe build a ground up and their beautiful ground up Taj Mahal, et cetera. I think the best advice I could have for folks would be to really know your lender, know who they are, what they can provide to you. So simple things, obviously, the obvious ones are rates, terms, fees, what's your down payment going to be, et cetera. Those are simple things. But I think the most important question to ask yourself would be, hey, does this person I'm working with and does this lender I'm working with, do they understand the veterinary industry? Do they understand what it is I'm trying to do? Can they be a steward throughout this process? Because it is a process, right? Especially so if you're doing a ground up construction or you're expanding into a new space and you're building out that space, that's a whole process that the lender really is going to want to, or you're going to want the lender, if you will, to understand and really know what you're looking to do and, and help you with your visions and your dreams as opposed to, hey, it's just a transaction, here's some money, et cetera. That's not going to get the job done. The job's going to get done when your team around you and the team includes your financers, when they are all in lockstep and working together toward your goal of a beautiful practice and practice ownership. So, And then the other thing, Isaiah, that I would like to talk about is kind of just who is the rest of the folks on that team, right? We spoke to mostly about the lender, but if you're doing something like this, especially if you're new to it, if you're just either acquiring your first practice or starting one up, or even if you're expanding, sometimes some of the other folks are on your team. That's when I speak of this team, an accountant and a CPA, or slash CPA they're going to be obviously key and crucial to your success. An attorney, you're going to want a good attorney who knows what they're doing and knows the veterinary industry and how to help you out. An insurance broker, any lending is going to require insurance. And of course, any veterinarian is going to need insurance. So a good insurance broker, again, that understands the veterinary industry and what it takes to be successful there. 
potentially working with a practice broker if you're looking to acquire a practice. A lot of times that's how you find what's on the market, a lease negotiator. So if you're looking for space, someone to negotiate that lease down, maybe some tenant improvements or just, hey, this is a healthcare professional, I'm a veterinarian. What can I do? What's the best you can do for me? And equipment suppliers, there's major equipment folks out there. They can always obviously help you build that practice with the equipment, but also a lot of them are helping you kind of build out spaces and design as well. So they're very useful as well. And then, of course, a general contractor, if you're doing the ground up construction and or you're building out a space, you want that GC. And then some of the other ones, an architect, an interior designer, a marketing consultant for when it's time to go ahead and launch your marketing plan, a practice management consultant potentially, and maybe just a mentor, like another veterinarian who you know maybe taught you in vet school or someone, a pillar of the community that you'd like to associate with. Really embed yourselves with them because they've been through it. They know what it took for them to do what they did. And maybe they stepped in some pitfalls here and there that they can steer you clear of. So that I think my best advice is that team is hugely important, not just your lender and can I qualify for this money? Obviously, the lender is important. That's why I'm talking to you today. But it's more specifically, what's the best team that I can build around myself to help me realize my dream and my passion? 100%. And a lot of the names that you've brought up are so key and crucial. There's been some awesome people that have joined this podcast that fit those roles to try to expose you, hopefully as a listener to people in the industry that not only care, but do really great work. And that's like the key of being able to bring them on, share their expertise. That way, if you do need, oh, I really need a great CPA, or maybe, hey, you have a family member that is fantastic and actually works in the space. Like, that's great. There's not always going to be someone that you have to get every single person, but they might be in there for a phase of a project or a phase of life. And there are just tremendous people in the vet med space that are professionals that are outside of just being veterinarians themselves. But great points. I think that's a good place to kind of stop with that. You know, Chris, that I always ask a question at the end to any guest, what questions they have for me. So personal, professional, anything that you're curious about, the floor is yours. Yeah. So I guess a good question that comes to mind would be, I know that you work, you're embedded in the veterinary community very closely. What has the impact of COVID-19 been on the veterinarians that you have associated with? And in addition, how do you see them coming out of it right now as we're moving away from the pandemic and more toward normalcy? What do you see in the marketplace as far as are more and more people going to be acquiring practices, starting practices, et cetera? Or what do you see? What kind of impact does it, has the COVID-19 pandemic had in the veterinary community? It's a great question. I think I have obviously a glimpse, but there's a lot of people in the industry that know this much better than I do. But what I would say is I think it's made people take a step back just COVID in general, having time away of like, what do I actually want out of kind of life in general? Like, do I want to be this busy? Do I want to do this? Am I happy here? There for moments, it was like, what is this actually going to be early on? No one really knew how serious this would be. And vet med was very blessed and fortunate in a way to be extremely busy throughout the pandemic. And a lot of practices had, I heard best years ever, best quarter ever. That's not everyone, right? Certain states were hit harder than others, but a lot of people were very, very busy. So a lot of veterinarians were super busy. I think that took a toll on them from a health perspective of just tons of hours, tons of additional stress, all these changes, balancing work, home, all these different things that are moving around. I think there's a lot of exhaustion, candidly, just mental exhaustion. Maybe they just are like, I'm not going to continue to work for this person anymore, or this isn't the right place for me. I've heard that 
time and time again, both in private conversations and even on this podcast. There's some people that have talked about stepping away and and revisiting what it is that they want to do and how they want to have an impact as a veterinarian. And that goes through techs, that goes through everyone within that business. So my thought is, again, from an ownership perspective and for the opportunity within veterinary medicine, it's fantastic, right? But you have to be at a place and have it designed to where you can be sustainable in that career. Like it's great to, you know, you can make a bunch of money and you can be busy, but is that really what you want to do? And then when is enough? And then how can you structure it to where you have sustainability? Because as everyone knows, like veterinary medicine has their struggles with mental health, with suicide, with all these other things. And that still is the, like the biggest unsolved question that's still out there. People are still trying to figure out what exactly the right answer is. But from what I've seen from COVID is it forced some people to use new technology. And I've seen people start to adapt to say, how can it be more efficient? Whether it's talk to text, curbside stuff, using more electronic forms and getting away from paper, like that's all great. And those are things that are going to stick. They're going to stay because they need to. But I think just trying to understand how to prioritize and make decisions from what is enough is still out there. So I know that's kind of a fluffy kind of qualitative, not like concrete, but that's kind of what I see is there's a huge opportunity for employers and for small business owners to attract talent and attract people by saying, this is how we're going to do it. And this is how we're going to do things differently. And I think that's an advantage. So I think the large corporate entity that figures it out best is going to do really well. And for the smaller business owners, the ones that can attract associates and offer flexibility, but still engage their people are going to do fantastic. So that's kind of my thoughts around COVID and where things are at. But yeah, veterinary medicine compared to hospitality or the restaurant industry is vastly, vastly better off and will continue to grow. So they're in a good spot. I totally agree. And I think that the biggest thing that I've seen is that people are, many, many more people are adopting pets at this point. And pets have really become not just pets anymore. They're part of the family. And I think the veterinary community is going to definitely be willing and ready to embrace that. And it's going to be a really positive thing in the future for veterinarians. Yeah, I think veterinary medicine is ripe for innovation and people that want to do things differently and not have the exact same practice that's been there for the last 30 years. Do something different, be creative and explore and try to build something for what millennials or younger pet owners want. And I think you can attract, you know, that's the biggest pet owning population. They're not going away. They're going to continue to own pets as their families grow and as they age. So there's a ton of really unique ideas that I'm starting to see from people starting startups or acquiring and making big changes. So yeah, with that, for someone that's listening that wants to connect, ask questions, Chris, where would you send them? How do they connect with you? What's all of the good stuff there? Yeah, absolutely. You can reach me via email and that would be C Mian. So it's letter C, my last name. That's Amazon Michael, E E H A N as in Nancy, C Mehan at the Bank Corps, T H E B A N C O R P, the Bank com. So C Mian at the Bank com. Or you can reach me directly on my phone, 513-290-6326. Again, 513-290-6326. And you're on LinkedIn. I'll put that in the show notes as well. I think that's an easy way to connect, kind of follow along that way. But yeah, I greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for answering the different questions and kind of walking through and helping people understand what the lending environment looks like for veterinarians today. Isaiah, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only 
you should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.